0: Welcome to the Mobile Dev Memo Podcast. I am your host, Eric Sufert. Today, I'm speaking with Matthew Ball. Matthew is an investor, esteemed thinker, and now author, whose first book, The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything, is currently available for pre-order and will officially be on sale on July 19th, so coming up soon. Matthew is one of my favorite thinkers in the gaming and interactive media space, and he also serves as a venture partner to Makers Fund with my friends Jay, Michael, and Archie. Matthew previously held strategy roles at Amazon Studios and the churning groups, Otter Media, and is the co-founder of Ball Metaverse Research Partners, which created and operates the Roundhill Ball Metaverse ETF, the first metaverse-focused ETF with ticker symbol META, M-E-T-A. I'm pleased to be speaking with Matthew today about his new book and, more specifically, The Economics of the Metaverse. How does an economy function within the context of infinite resources, total proximity, and immediate and complete access to information. Welcome, Matthew.
1: I'm really excited to be
0: here. I'm excited to have you. Did I capture the totality of your essence? You do a lot of things. Did that capture everything? Did I leave anything out?
1: So I'm now doing producing in TV, film, and gaming. There's an experience coming out, actually that came out yesterday, The Walking Dead, The Last Mile, which is an interactive, persistent virtual world slash television show that airs on Facebook Watch. And I have some series coming to major streaming services, probably at the end of 23, if not the
0: early 2024. Well, that's impressive. And um, if you keep up this pace of output, any podcast you do in like five years time will consist solely of your introduction. <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> yes, I tr- trust me. I get into occasional disagreements with my incredible uh, publicity team as to how Indulgent they sometimes feel but let's move on to the fun stuff what we can talk about as opposed to my lengthy intro
0: Let's do it Uh, your book. is coming out in Five days you must be excited slash exhausted. I read it. It's fantastic I recommend everybody that's interested in this space to read it. It's the canonical primer on the metaverse Your name is basically synonymous with the term metaverse you've written an excellent series of essays on the topic on your website the book is a natural continuation of that vector of thought. What originally animated your interest in this topic?
1: So I've always been obsessed with new consumer and largely media technology. I've always been a sci-fi fan. I've always loved fantastical worlds. And I've been familiar with this broad concept in the book. I talk about the fact that the term's 30 years old, but the ideas span nearly a century. But it was really my experiences in 2018 in Fortnite and in Roblox that made me feel that this ancient or relatively ancient modern idea and fantastical concept was becoming a practical business opportunity.
0: Got it. And I think that that's really interesting when you put that in the context of that chronology, right? So, you know, in the book, you talk about parallel plane of existence. That's a hundred year old idea. The efforts to build that probably date back about 70 years. The term itself, uh, that's 30 years old. Second life is 15 years old, first published 15 years ago. And then in the last two years, we've seen like kind of an incredible frenzy of activity first of all, is that a correct characterization? Have I just missed it? right? Were people just not paying attention and there actually was a sort of build up to the moment that we saw unfold in the last two years? Or was there really like a catalyst that happened in the last two years that drove a lot of that activity? And if so, what was it? So I think it's both,
1: really. I mean, we see decades of early attempts to build this. Second life was one, but we can go into the 70s and 80s and 90s. Many of the leaders in the metaverse today have been quietly at work since the early 90s. NVIDIA, Unknown to most people, even today, the seventh largest company on earth, founded in the early 90s, Epic Games founded in the early 90s, Roblox became a cultural sensation in 2020. It launched in 2006. So some of this has been long incubating. But we certainly hit this catalyst over the past five years, ending or like the The end of the start was the pandemic, which forced many of us into virtual worlds for new purposes. But it probably started with the advent of widely deployed GPUs and other processors, largely in 2014, 2015, 2016, in the average smartphone, that allowed the average person to access richly rendered real-time 3D social experiences from a device that was always inches away from them that's when roblox starts to take off that's when the battle royale genre emerges it was in a sense the 3g moment uh, the 3g moment for virtual worlds
0: yeah it's funny to consider epic among those companies right because you know fortnite was such a cultural flashpoint but the company is as you said i mean it was founded in the 90s i was one of those nerdy fanboys in like the late 90s early 2000s that followed like the dot plan files from all the uh, first person shooter game developers right like id software and i don't think tim sweeney ever updated one of those but cliff Blazinski did right because there was this kind of two cults right the cult of id and quake and then the cult of epic and unreal and you were part of a faction And if you liked Quake, and you liked Quake 2 especially, and then Quake 3, which was just uh, purely multiplayer, you didn't play Unreal games, right? That was just, that's not what you did. And there was just like this very sort of like concrete separation between those two player bases. And so as a result, I was a Quake guy. And that was like just a totally frivolous decision. It was because id Software was based in Dallas. I was from Houston. I wanted to play for the local team, right? And I only sort of really discovered Epic as a company. And they kind of went through a transformation. Obviously, Tencent took a stake in them as like an analyst, right? But as a player, I was never really that familiar with Epic's products. And then actually I went out to do a project with Epic many years ago and they showed me this game and they were sort of pitching it as like, yeah, this, it's, it's a cross platform game. And, um, you know, but there's a mobile component. We don't have much experience with mobile publishing. Can you help us think through like the roadmap? And I was like, guys, I don't know. I think this game is just not gonna be commercially successful. I, I would just be very wary of publishing this game. And and that game's name was Fortnite. And Luckily, they did not take my advice and it became, you know, the biggest, first of all, that was a single player game at the time. They added the Battle Royale component onto it later. But but nonetheless, I'm glad they did not take my advice. I'm glad that Fortnite became the sort of worldwide cultural phenomenon that it did. But to your point, like a lot of these companies, they've gone, NVIDIA created basically the Voodoo graphics cards and that's what it was known for. And now it's, you know, powering. A lot of aspects of, you know, the sort of consumer technology space that we understand today with anything related to Metaverse is going to have something to do with the GPU aspect, but then of the cards they produce, but also all of like the sort of like video processing that, you know, TikTok, Facebook are doing. It's all dependent on the access to the GPU hardware. And then, of course, all like of the cryptocurrency stuff, very much dependent on that hardware. And these companies are not new. Right. But like some of these concepts that they're empowering are, uh, which is just really interesting to think about that, that progression over time.
1: You're quite right. To think a little bit more about NVIDIA, Jensen Huang, the founder and CEO, has always talked about the fact that the company was founded based on the premise of graphics-based computing, understanding that it could solve queries and address problems that general purpose computing never could. And he talks about the fact NVIDIA was not intended to be a gaming company per se. It's not really, but of course, most of its revenues have historically been in the gaming space. And he says that gaming was the best strategic choice that he made. And that's because it had three unique attributes. One is it was large relatively in industry size. Two is that it was technologically intensive. And three was that it was fast moving. Most industries have one, sometimes two, rarely three of those. And it also just so happens that the learnings from that category in simulation, in network design, in world creation, in the prioritization of scarce resources to pull off what is hard to make and then render and produce and synchronize gaming companies have been building that for decades in many instances fighting against what isn't possible and so we have this weird inflection i'm often asked this question if the metaverse is a multi-trillion dollar opportunity if it is a successor to today's computing and networking paradigms how come it's originating from a relatively small arguably niche portion of consumer leisure and the answer is All of the problems, all of the experience has been in this category for decades, and now it's ready for much, much more.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating to think about. And typically, you know, gaming is the tip of the spear for any kind of new, especially consumer technology, use case or form factor, or or even just human compute paradigm. Um, And so it makes sense that, you know, a lot of these things that feel like they're particular components to a gaming experience really will unlock you know, use cases that go far beyond gaming. And I have a couple questions related to to more like the work aspect. By the way, I want to call out that you did an excellent interview with Ben Thompson. Oh, thank you. I would encourage anyone listening to this, if they're interested in this topic, also read that, the transcript of that interview. I think it it, it provides a really, really nice window into the way that you think about the metaverse. So my primary interest in the metaverse is the new economic models that it might facilitate. I liken the development of the metaverse economy to to the real disruptions and the innovations that were unlocked with the proliferation of smartphones, right? And especially the freemium business model. I see the metaverse economy as a continuation in that same direction, but with one fundamental progression, which is that freemium allows for a price point of zero, right? Because selling products incurs no marginal production costs, right? You've produced the product, it's there, selling copies of it, you know, doesn't cost you money as the the retailer, the producer, whatever. And the TAM is nearly universal given the reach of smartphones, right? But with freemium, you have terrestrially native companies building software products that fit into a specific terrestrially native use case right like the canonical example mobile games you're on the bus you're in the doctor's office you're in the waiting room right let me load up the mobile game buy some gems and there are resource resource constraints inherent in those propositions but the metaverse economy is different right potentially you have digitally native companies companies that are domiciled in the metaverse building products that can be represented in a digital world in a multitude of ways you go into this in the book what i'm really interested in hearing is how you think about creator economics in the metaverse and the forces that will motivate people to build and sell their work in the metaverse? What factors are unlocked in the metaverse that create the opportunity for increased economic output versus the world that we inhabit now, the physical world?
1: Well, so this is such a fun and rich question. I want to start firstly that if you take a look at the visions of many of these individuals, Tim Sweeney talks about the fact that just as every company has a website, many have an application, almost all are going to need some sort of presence or virtual storefront objects in the metaverse. The extraordinary investment required to build this is why the company, Epic, is so arranged on dropping the cost, the difficulty, limitations of creation in 3D. But no matter how much they do that, they need extraordinary investment from those outside developers, the groups, the brands, the individuals, you and I, to build it. And that is only possible with trust. Trust underpins all economies. It's the idea that what is being sold to you is truthful, that the purchase that you make, the relationship you establish is going to be respected. The problem we have often had in the digital economy is the most scalable of those transactions tends to have a short lifespan. Okay, I bought some gems. I'm going to use them. I don't have much of a need for trust that Candy Crush is going to respect that. It's 99 cents. It's a game. There's no greater societal dependence. And when you get beyond that, there's a lot of mistrust. Facebook has spent a decade trying to repair its relationship with developers and creators after constantly oscillating in its API availabilities, its support in the feed, whether or not it actually wants a games platform or not. And we see this in Apple right now. The idea of, is Apple truly trying to help its developers, or is it only happy to facilitate those developers when it doesn't seem threatening to another part of their business? And so the first and most important part is to recognize the way in which we're seeing greater focus from each market participant on proving why they should be trusted. Earlier this year, Brad Smith at Microsoft, he's the vice chairman, released a 14-point memorandum outlining how they believe that they would be responsible stewards in the metaverse, talking about payments. They commit, though they don't provide a specific timeline or approach to opening up payments and sideloading on the Xbox, to providing consistent access to proprietary APIs for their own subsidiaries versus outside parties. Epic has made these fundamental changes to their terms of service that are designed to build trust. For example, they've said that if you license a specific build of Unreal They can never change the terms of service. doesn't mean that if you license 4.3.1 and move to UE5, there won't be different services. You can never future-proof your contract forever. But they say that you will always get to use 4.3.1 as you originally licensed it. They've also said that if they have a dispute with a developer, they can't lock them out. They can't shut them down. They have to go to courts and get an injunction. The legal system as it exists today has to agree that, basically, a landlord has the right to shut down a tenant. And so I want to start by talking about this economy of the metaverse question by talking about the ways in which people are focused on building trust, earning it over time, and that's fundamentally healthier. When you're talking about the economy of the metaverse itself, I agree with you on the fundamental potency of marginal cost. Because of the conflation between Web3 crypto and the metaverse, Most people assume I'm a zealot for virtual real estate. That concept really doesn't excite me. I'm not a big believer in it. I actually think it's contrary to most of the benefits of virtual space. But we are still sorting out how you make this work. What is the lever and what's not? Microtransactions free to play, obvious now, they weren't. They frankly weren't obvious even when China and Japan had proven them for years. Right, and so when we talk about what happens here. Look, I'm hopeful that the rise of zero marginal cost goods and more interoperable systems will put incremental focus on the experience, that that's what's going to be monetized. Right now, a lot of it is on capture, distribution of content or hardware. They're gatekeepers in either discovery or access or runtime. But I'm hopeful that when we shift into a zero marginal cost environment, we see more focus on actually what is being made and why. But the bigger thing, and I'd be excited to pass the baton over to you is the growing awareness of how gatekeeping, not necessarily software distribution, though, that's a big part, but at least payments is a fundamental impediment to one of the most important growth areas of our economy, which is just interactivity at large.
0: I feel like this reticence to embrace the obvious future with respect to payments is going to put Apple on the wrong side of history. And you look at what they're doing, right? For instance, like the Netherlands, they've you know, they ha- they've had these like geography by geography, you know, sort of like competition authority rulings saying you have to open up payments, you just have to. And, you know, the way they've approached that is still to kind of stonewall it or to slow roll it or to propose solutions that clearly aren't in alignment with the thrust of the ruling, right? And the perfect example is the Netherlands, right? So they and I made a video meme about this that I thought would be a hit, but it's got like two thousand views on YouTube. But anyway, it's the it's the guy that can't stop laughing, right? And there, he's like being interviewed, and you superimpose text over. He's speaking Spanish, but anyway. And so what they did was like you know the Netherlands Competition Authority said, okay, for dating apps in the Netherlands, you have to allow alternative in app payments or, or just alternative payments, not necessarily in app. And so what they did was they pushed a modal, right, that sort of said, hey, you know, if you click out, you're going to some external property to make a payment, and look, we can't guarantee anything. Right. It's just this very intimidating sort of intermediary step to actually making the payment, which is going to scare people. Right. And just the act of clicking out in the first place is going to create a conversion. When you throw up this warning label, that makes it impossible for the sort of the conversion rate to net out to be beneficial to you, no matter how much you decrease the the ultimate price. On the alternative payment system and then they also forced a separate app bundle right so you had to publish a separate app bundle Mm -hmm. to include alternative payments which no one's going to do that for just the netherlands right i mean all of these impediments just make it very clear that they are going to fight this tooth and nail and i think what you see now is like this kind of like the idea of like an abundance economy the idea should be grow participation don't grow your rake grow participation. Everybody wins if you grow participation. And I get it. I know there's a team of accountants at Apple that are saying, look, if we can extend our sort of 30% rake on IAPs to 2025, we're going to make X many more billions of dollars. I if think it's $5 billion a month in cash flow. Sure. And there's the very sort of real politic to this. But I think they're missing the paradigm shift. And I think that's most epitomized in the notion of the metaverse, right? Total abundance, total, absolute sort of abundance of resources and access. And if you grow participation there, you don't need to have a 30% rake because you're gonna make more money in the sort of like macro scheme of things by just onboarding people into this new sort of interface and, and human compute paradigm, right? And I think like one, one story I always tell is like, when I was at this company, Digital Chocolate, we made Facebook games. We kind of moved into mobile a little bit too late uh, the supercell team spun out of digital chocolate well not spun out they were employees they left and they started supercell anyway when i first joined there was like this grizzled kind of games veteran and i say that now he's probably he's probably younger then than i am now but he was telling me about like 2008 they went to wwdc and they saw the presentation of the app store and when steve jobs said yeah and we're going to take a 30 percent cut of iap revenues people were cheering right yeah because that was massively more beneficial to them than the commercial arrangements they had with the oems in like the j2me stores and so that was seen as like okay wow these economics are much much better for us and now obviously people are fighting that right and i guess the question is like we've seen some early inklings of like what the commercial arrangements will be with like metaverse creator economies i'm wondering where that goes because i think like the more you sort of encourage participation on the consumer side the more you get participation from developers right to create for the metaverse and you expand the tam you expand the economy of this like the less money you actually need to extract from it or sort of like the lower the sort of participation rate needs to be just for access, right? And that seems like the way forward, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about that.
1: Right, so there are a bunch of different ways to back this down. Number one, if one believes in the metaverse or at least more important virtual simulations, then fundamentally that's going to be a driver for more advanced hardware. It's the reason why some people get an iPad Pro versus a standard iPad, which is the games that they want to play on So we can understand one driver of Apple's business that is perhaps in partial tension with the take rate. Why? Because the take rate does substitute profits from the developer to Apple that could be used to better the product. The second is just to understand the ways in which the technological discovery and experimentation is impeded by the protection of Aya. Tim Sweeney has talked about, for example that he's not a big believer in cloud gaming. He believes in local processing over a remote data center for most rendering services. And yet Apple doesn't really allow that ecosystem to grow. WebGL GL or OpenGL, WebXR, OpenXR, they're not really possible on iOS. And one can fairly argue that that's because Apple doesn't want you to play rich interactive experiences in the browser because they don't take a cut there. We can also talk about the growth in the advertising ecosystem, which is partly because Apple takes zero cut there. Of course, the average developer would rather have a dollar in CPM that all goes to them or mostly goes to them versus one that they lose 70 or 30% of that goes to Apple. And so this protection of IAP manifests in how the metaverse develops. That means that there's less experimentation, less organic development, a slower pace of growth. And then the third is to recognize that the metaverse is understood as endpoint agnostic virtual networks and experiences. That fundamental idea is, of course, intention with the preferences of a specific platform, doesn't want endpoint agnosticity, but especially one that is hardware-centric, where the runtime the execution is all supposed to be on a specific thing. Now, that's a fine tension. We should not have a specific company unable to fight back to protect its business. But the argument is, Apple, as they sit right now, is so powerful. They're two-thirds of all software sales on a mobile device globally. They're 90% of teens in the United States. They're 75% of new device purchases, 66% of U.S. customers. They have such hard, soft, and accidental power that they do shrink the growth in the digital economy, they do shape what technologies emerge, they do change which business models are viable and when.
0: Right, I wanna hover here because I think it's an important point. And I think, again, it goes back to like, okay, there's a very obvious eventuality here. And it's like, there's a gatekeeper that is imposing friction and obstacles to that. And I think we'd all like to get there. And we all kind of wish we could just fast forward past this point. I read an amazing article the other day, it was it's called, the title is Apple is not defending browser engine choice and it, it's long. And it really unpacks the ways that Apple exerts control over the actual like browser engines that are available to browser developers. That's something that I think a lot of people don't understand is that any browser that you use on your iPhone, doesn't matter if it's Chrome or Firefox, it's running on the, um, the WebKit engine. There's still the gatekeeper control even in the browser. So even when you're talking about the open web, that's still very much intermediated by Apple. So anyway, it's called Apple is not defending browser engine choice on infrequently noted, published last month. But I, I wanna talk about the Apple stuff because I think it's really important. Apple's not necessarily the, the antagonist here, it's just a helpful concrete example. And you know, I think with the payment stuff, so I was talking to a very senior person at a big mega tech uh, company the other day, and I was kind of pitching in my vision. I, I wrote this three part series a while back called like the Future of Content platforms on mobile. And I was making the case, look, all this stuff is moving to the cloud, right? Yes, the gatekeepers want to maintain that status, but they can't. Consumers are going mm-hmm. to demand that all the content they want to interact with be available on every single device that they own. And and Apple doesn't make TVs or whatever. You know, like I, I have a Samsung TV, I have an iPhone, an iPad, I have a PC that I play games on, like all that stuff. I demand all the content that I love be available on all of them. And you can't, force these developers to create you know specific applications at some point you won't be able to or enforce specific rules for those specific expressions of that content on your platform you won't be able to do that because i demand a universally unified experience and at some point the ability to make those demands flips from the gatekeeper that controls one platform to the consumer that demands all this content be available in exactly the same format on all their devices right now i was making this pitch and you know this person was like that's a great pitch. Sign me up for that version of the future. But Apple is a massively powerful company and they could pretty much just do whatever they want, right? Like, yeah, I get it. Consumers have power, but they can vote with their wallets, but this is Apple, you know what I mean? Like any other company, sure. Yeah, you sold me. But when you're talking about Apple, they have so much market power. And the question I guess is like, and it, I think the game streaming on the device is a perfect example, right? They they won't allow the game streaming apps in the app store. Okay. The company's pushed them to the browser. The browser doesn't necessarily support it. Xbox has found a way to get a pretty high fidelity streaming experience in the iPhone. Now what happens with private relay? Apple is the gatekeeper not only to access to the content that gets downloaded to your phone, but access to the open internet. And like they have the ability to block that. And I don't want to call out Apple. Apple's a great company. You know, I have a ton of Apple products, massive respect for their product design sensibilities and ease of use. But any gatekeeper with that much power and that much sort of entrenched interest, how do you fast forward past this friction period? How do you just get from here to where we want to go? Right. Which is the abundance economy, the metaverse economy.
1: Well, so this is such a good example. And you're right. Like it's always challenging because we're talking about too much centralization, effectively, to use a modern term. And we're talking about too much power. And yet it was exactly that, vertical integration and centralization, the iPhone like AOL, that massively accelerated the adoption of a critical and important part of our economy. Without the iPhone or the iPhone four years later, the world is farther behind than it is right now. And yet, if regulation exists for anyone, it should probably apply to the richest company on earth, the most successful product on earth and the company which generates more profits than any other company on earth. But the clearest example to me, and this is where we get into the metaverse economy, is you've probably read this. We saw it in the Epic versus Apple trial. Netflix leaves the App Store, IAP in December 2018. And they left because they did the math. Yes, having IAP is better for customer acquisition, lower customer acquisition costs, more customers. But they found that the 30%, sometimes 15%, that they had to pay was not worth it, partly because churn for customers acquired through that channel was higher. And so they go back and forth, and Apple tries to tell them, what can we do? How can we get you back? And Netflix says, look, we know the math. If you can get the math to be where we need it to be, we'll come back. In October of 2021, three years later, Netflix returns. Why did they return? Not because their video business had changed. Again, this is before any drop but because they wanted to launch their game service. Now, the game service doesn't work as most consumers would want it to. You can see what the apps are in the Netflix app, but you have to install them separately through the App Store. The App Store has a separate listing. They're separately reviewed. They're separately launched. It prevents disintermediation by Netflix. It's not a great experience. But putting aside the UIX, launching a games business or interactive experiences obligated the entirety of Netflix's non- interactive business, into IAP, And so if we say that the future is interactive, I'm not even going to talk about the metaverse, but just say real-time render, 2D or 3D, interactive, the entire world and its current business gets pushed into the IAP system. That does not seem like a good thing generally, especially when you then talk to exactly what you just teed up with cloud gaming The ways in which it not only forces take, but conforms business models, precludes certain technologies, and does produce friction, that is clearly not the consumer's benefit. Cloud gaming works as though every show on Netflix has to be downloaded by a thin client through a different application, not accessed through Netflix. Nobody likes that. That's not why we subscribe to any
0: service. Right. And they kind of have to jump through like a lot of intellectual loops to justify it. Right. Especially like I wrote this article a while back called the app store has a too big to fail problem. Right. Like they had to let Netflix kind of skirt the rules, especially with the gaming stuff, but also just generally with, they were kind of one of the original companies that pushed like the web subscriptions and took the subscription functionality completely out of the app. And that sort of, I think instigated Apple to sort of like post hoc justify that with the reader app rule. And now there's the cross-platform rule which like absolves a lot of that behavior but you know i wrote this to talk about like talking about just that like okay netflix is gating the functionality of an app with a login well we remember when that happened i'm blanking on the name but the guy that made ruby on rails they had the email app where they pushed it to the app store i can't remember the name of it anyway and and they apple kicked it out of the app store because hey hey, that's right exactly hey and and so they said you know you you know you open up the app and there's a login screen there has to be some sort of core functionality that's available to users, otherwise, you know, it's a bad experience, right? And they sort of justified kicking it out with some Byzantine developer rule. But Phil Schiller did an interview where he said, yeah, the reason we kicked it out was because you open the app and there's no functionality and it's a bad experience, right? So like they have these the sort of like the developer guidelines now just really serve as air cover to make whatever kind of capricious decisions they want that best benefit them. And the Netflix example is a perfect one, right? It's not a good example if you just discovered that game, you download it, you open it up, and it's like, well, you can't play it because you don't have a Netflix account. That's a horrible experience, but they allow Netflix to do it. Why? Because they can't kick Netflix out of the app store. Yeah. That'd be absurd, and it's the same with Roblox, right? You made the point, which I kind of co-opted and didn't give you proper credit for, but I edited the article later. I don't remember what the title was. This is like two years ago. Why is Netflix allowed to have these games that you stream, yet Apple says you can't have game streaming apps in the app store? Well, because Apple said it's an experience. It's not in, that, in the trial. It's an experience. It's not a game. Well, okay, come on. You know, that's that's a totally arbitrary distinction without a difference here that you made up. But like you end up with these inscrutable jumble of rules that really just serve to allow Apple to make whatever decision it wants. And Apple operates in the dark. They like to have max optionality. So if you create this complex, totally indecipherable set of rules, well, totally. then you can enforce them however you want. I think, look, the more important thing here, and this is where you know, Tim
1: Sweeney is often asked, what is the right fee for the app store? Mm-hmm, right. And we all know that in a open app store environment, almost all transactions are going to go through the app store anyway. And we know that Apple is going to take a much higher rate than everyone else because of their brand, because of their native integration, and because it's probably going to work better. The question is not, do they have the right to have policies A, B, and C? The problem is the iPhone is one of the most important products ever right now, that bundles hardware with operating system, with distribution of software, with technological requirements, with identity, with payments. And that prevents market discovery of appropriate prices, of appropriate terms, of appropriate business models. And that is problematic generally. My favorite example, Well, rather than the Netflix one, is actually one that I think has received very little coverage, which is if we learned anything over the past 20 years, it's the potency of network effects and social graphs. And this is relevant to your investigations into ad networks. In 2020, Apple had a policy change in their app store that said, if you support third-party identity networks, log in with Facebook, log in with Google, log in with Twitter, you have to also support login with iCloud. This was not a service that had really launched before a few years ago. It was very late. And yet, of course, most applications do support some form of alternative identity system. The New York Times does. But if you obligate applications to use iCloud on iOS, then they have to support it everywhere else. Because if Eric chooses to sign into New York Times with his iCloud account on his iPhone, you have to make that available on other devices and the web otherwise he can't log in. And so you have a company that has 66 to 90% market share late in a highly competitive category that was able to use the fact their competitors were deployed to obligate deployment of its identity solution on the most important platform in the world that obligated platform adoption everywhere else. That is a result of forced bundling up and down the stack. More people competing with Facebook, awesome. More people saying we're gonna be a better identity system with more privacy, more controls, lower rates, the things that Apple promises, that's awesome. But the idea that you can be late, that you can use strength elsewhere to force in a system where the developer can't say, you know what? I like Twitter and I don't wanna support iCloud. Well, then you have to delist your app. That's not a great system.
0: Yeah, and there's another complication that arises from this kind of forced uptake is that if you've supported the iCloud gaming infrastructure with any game, you can't transfer that app to a new publisher account. Uh, You have to fully delist it and republish it, right? So like... I had no idea. ...have a publishing... Or sorry, a, a transfer mechanism, right? So like, you know, I know this is the last company I worked at. We we're doing like games publishing, right? And so like, we needed to have the app published from our account. And so that was a problem. Like we had to act. So when we went into these like exploratory kind of negotiations, we asked like, have you ever supported any of these like iCloud features? Because if you did, then we can't easily transfer the game to our account. We have to depublish it and then republish it. That means everyone has to re-download the game. Right, which you know, that's creates a lot of a lot of frictions, right, from a publishing standpoint. Okay, I have two more topics like to get to, but it'll be a success if we sort of dig into one, and it's more touching on like the economy side, but I think more around like the jurisdiction in the metaverse, right? If we think about ownership, IP. So the Metaverse Standards Forum, you talked about this recently initiated the remit was establishing broad operating principles for the metaverse one of the issues you have with any, any digital environment but i think it's probably more acute in like concept like the metaverse is that you know you have the prospect of piracy and replicability right you have like a fully digital environment these projects are all products are all digital you can replicate them you can pirate them you can clone them and it's just a matter of like you know just a software replication right especially given that the creation takes could take place natively within the metaverse, right? And so is this a new economic reality for creators? How do you lean into this new economic reality where anything you create within the context of the metaverse, digitally native to the metaverse environment, could just be pirated, replicated, cloned, copied, or whatever. How do creators navigate that? And then how do these kind of like standards organizations protect against that, or do they? Is that just a reality of operating in the metaverse?
1: This is a tough one for which I, I don't have instant answers. I think what we're seeing with blockchain is one reflection of exactly that. When I send you, to contextualize this simply, I've taken a photo on my phone. I then email it to you. What happens? It now exists on my phone, on a Gmail server, on your Gmail-related server account, and then on your device. We have fundamental copies. And so if we want to provide interoperability of anything, let's put aside whether or not I want to drive around and Call of duty Warzone with a Peely skin. That's a specific example, not that compelling. We have this fundamental question of, well, now we have copies. And so instead you want to say, we need to maintain at least who owns that. Well, then you have questions of who's providing access to or transmitting it, right? Does one party have to delete their file or is someone provisionally accessing it? And if they're provisionally accessing it, who takes on the insurance risk? Who takes on the security risk? Who manages that permission? How do you compensate the person who's taking custody of that for then providing that services elsewhere? We don't have good systems for this. The Metaverse Standards Forum is partly trying to talk about data conventions and file format standards. We have to figure out this question of records and systems for control, delete, share, access, authenticate. Exactly how are we going to do that? What are the economic systems for that? I don't know. I think what's fun is that game developers have proved themselves to be incredibly proficient at testing. And then within a span of two to three years, a new financial primitive ends up being the most widely deployed form of monetization. And so I don't have the answer. I have a lot of faith in developers, and I would not underestimate the time it takes for the discovery to become the standard.
0: Right. And I, Yeah. I mean, I feel like people try to draw parallels to just you know the formation of like legal standards or common law or whatever or, or you know any sort of economic system when they think about these digital worlds right but they're fundamentally different right It's like the economy of infinity is fundamentally different than the real world where there is you know resource scarcity and you have to contend with that right and like I think going back to your comment about like digital land sales like I get that I mean I, I totally agree because what does property mean in the metaverse when there's the potential for infinite? land or like, well, I could just clone whatever island, uh, you know, that you're chopping up and selling into parcels. I could just clone that. There's nothing. Or what is
1: adjacency, right? Right. What is a plot of land beside another plot of land? We don't think of namespace on the internet or a dot com address is relevant because it's easier and more convenient. But it's not like channel space on a television. Channel 28 is better than channel 65 Mm -hmm. back in the 90s. There's not just this question of scarcity. There's this question of like skeuomorphic positioning, right? right?
0: Yeah, There's a, there was a great joke from this TV show, Crashing. It's about a stand-up comedian who's like kind of crashing around on people's couches on HBO. And, he, and he, Anyway, they, they sample a stand-up. It's kind of like Seinfeld did, you know, early on. And, and he, they stopped doing that mid-season or mid-show. Uh, but And he's talking about like, you know, in Islam, like they point to God and they point up. Why? Like the universe is infinite, right? Maybe it's that way, right? Maybe you point down it, or maybe you point left. It, there's no sense mm-hmm. like infinite space that that up means anything, right? Like it, it anyway, it, it, it's but that's exactly to your point, like, well, like, what does location, location, location mean, right? In a digital environment for which there is total abundance of quote, unquote, land, or just total availability of any resource, right? What does that mean? The point I made in the intro, like, you know, sort of like total proximity, like I could be next to this or I could be, you know, infinitely far away from it and just by choice. Right. There's no sense of like, I need to be near this thing because that's where all the foot traffic is. Right. Like if I'm setting up a storefront that does that, these concepts don't transfer, I guess, is my, my bigger point.
1: No, totally. I mean, what we're talking about is discovery and distribution. Absolute utility on that. But that's actually a very different thing than just virtual real estate. Now, we can force-fit the design of a virtual world, so that discovery and real estate are one and the same. But that is a choice. It's a creative design choice. It's not an intrinsic element of the metaverse.
0: Right, and and I think kind of just continuing on this thread, right? So this, this kind of idea that I had is is you you almost run into sort of like a reverse Malthusian problem, right? Like we're not running out of resources to support humanity. We're running out of humans... Right. At some point to yield these resources. Right. If you think about like a metaverse concept. And I think that just like fundamental, you know, sort of like inverse relationship just has to change the way you think about the economies of these virtual worlds, but also like in combination and and the virtual life that we live in them, like and where AI fits in to sort of fill the gaps. Right. And like like if there's infinite resources and I possibly I can't possibly make use of them in, in like the finite lifetime of a human being. How much do we come to rely on A.I. to support like happy like these abstract concepts of like happiness, love, prosperity, uh, contentedness? How much do we come to depend on A.I. to do that for us, which can operate in a sort of like much more just robust way?
1: Yeah, look, I'll, I'll tell you one of my favorite ways of thinking of just how different these principles and mindsets are. This is a lot more specific than the magnitude of what you just brought up, but I find it a useful example. Right? What is design in social commerce, or rather most applications today? It's minimizing clicks to action, the primary action, right? That's why Amazon had one click to purchase, which they patented. You had to license that technology. Well, if you take a look at social gaming... You know, the ostensible lesson was you want to minimize the time until someone's playing the game, hands-on controller, they're in a match. You take a look at something like Fortnite, it's actually designed to stall you before you do that. You hang out in the lobby. That is a totally counterintuitive principle. You would want to actually provide the least amount of functionality and distraction that would keep Eric and I from going into Fortnite Battle Royale, which is ostensibly why we're there. But instead, they're designing so that you get stuck in the lobby because the purpose is actually very different. And again, we're talking about a specific example, but it starts to reflect the ways in which gaming, as we used to think about it, experiences and monetization, as we used to think about it, not just in lobby design, but around the idea that cosmetics are the primary driver. They complement the experience you're not directly paying for, but you pay for it via the cosmetics. All of these things start to open up a lot. And so we start by saying, how do we replicate what we already know? Well, in some instances, it's real estate's the most valuable asset class in the world. If we're building a parallel plane of existence, why wouldn't it be so there? And I get that, as do I get the logic of saying, well, in 3D, we should remake the office so that we have a virtual boardroom. I get that. I'm positive it's wrong, but I get the logic that brings us there to start.
0: Uh, There's just so much here. I would love to chat with you about this all day. I am respectful of your time, though. Matthew Ball, this has been a fascinating conversation. The book is The Metaverse. It's available for purchase now by pre-order, but it will be available for physical interaction on July 19th. I appreciate your time. Where can people read you? Where can they discover more from you? Where can they interact with your content?
1: The book is available at every major bookseller. You can find it on Apple Books, on Amazon, your local bookstore. I love to recommend bookshop.org. It's an e-commerce provider that provides 75% of their gross profit to a pool for indie booksellers. And online, I'm at Ball Matthew and online for my blog, I'm MatthewBall.vc.
0: Excellent. I'm going to link to the pre-order page in the blog post that accompanies this podcast. But Matthew Ball, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it.